Amen. Thanks, guys. Hey, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that and meet me over in James chapter 5. We are in the last chapter of the book of James. We've got three more weeks in the book of James, and we've been in this book for the last three months. And what I hope you're starting to see as we've walked through this book is the practical imperative statements. You remember those? He's 54 of them over the course of five chapters where James just says it as it is. Do this, do that, do this, do that. These practical imperative statements are meant to help enrich your life so that as you live the Christian life, you actually begin to have joy. Because if you really think about it, that's how God designed you. God designed you in his image, which means that as you operate as an image bearer, you actually have more joy in your life. Now, one of the greatest myths in the Christian life is this. It's that, it's, it's that you, how you live matters, or doesn't matter. It, it, this cheap grace that you're just saved by faith. And because you're saved by faith, it doesn't really matter how you live because you got your get out of hell free card. Well, the reality is that's just not true. How you live does matter because saving faith always produces a changed life. And, and, and that's one of the major themes in the book of James. James wants you to know that God saved you through Jesus and now how you live matters because, well, you're his change agent in the world. You are his gift, if you will, to a dying world so that they can see Jesus through you. So today, today we're going to look at one of the most important aspects in the Christian life, the next theme that James hits on, and it's justice. Justice. Yale scholar Mirschloff Wolf, try to say his name ten times fast, has been one of the most inspirational figures in my life. Matter of fact, I like him so much that the first name I wanted to name my kid was Mirschloff Keller. No, my, my wife would have uppercutted me in the throat and then divorced me over that one. Um, when, I, when I was battling, when I was battling a lot of hurt in my life and trying to come to grips with my past, and if you're new around here, um, I'll share some of that, but the hurt and the abuse that I lived through as a child, I, I lived in this realm of unforgiveness and and it was really difficult. Well, Wolf, Wolf writes extensively on this. He's actually a Croatian that lived under the torture of a Yugoslavian concentration camp. And, and he wrote a book called The End of Memory, which is by far one of the most impactful books on my, in my life, where he talks about how he came to grips with the person who tortured him and how he can actually forgive him. Well, Wolf, again, as he writes this, it helped me to understand what forgiveness was. And listen, maybe, maybe, maybe you're right where I was or where he was, and you really battle this idea of the true injustices that have happened in your life, and how can you let go of them? Listen, if you're there, I get that. I remember, I remember one day so clearly, and um, hey, listen, I, God doesn't really speak to me audibly, like um, he doesn't have voices in my head, but one day I was driving down I-40 in Raleigh, North Carolina, and about as clear as God could speak to me, he says, call your dad, and I wish I was like, huh, I was like, no. So in, 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 you know, argument ensued, and ultimately um, God won because he relentlessly pursues his children that he loves, and he said, call your dad and forgive him. So I called my dad, um, and I hadn't talked to my dad in a while, and I told my dad, hey, listen, I forgive you, and I love you. And um, he hung up the phone, said he did not forgive us, and he has not called back to this day, and that was like eight years ago. Y'all, I get how hard this stuff is. I get how hard it is, but you know what? God gave me freedom that day, and this is what Wolf helped me to understand, is that there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is a one-way street that allows you to open up the doors of the prison that you live in and unlock those doors and walk out into freedom. 
Reconciliation takes two people. Listen to me, the Bible commands forgiveness. It does not command reconciliation. Reconciliation is only possible when both people want to do it. Paul says live with one another It's if you can. Okay, Wolf helped me to understand that. He helped me to not carry with me this, this injustice, but to let it go. Now, here's what Wolf says. Listen to this. this. This changed my life. He says, forgiveness flounders because we exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. You see what he's saying? I start to see people as subhuman, and I start to see myself as superhuman, and that is the roots of injustice. I want you to know that it's not about forgiveness, it's actually about injustice. And the roots of injustice are that I forget that I'm actually a sinner too. That the seed of every sin is in every human heart, like John Owen says. Listen, if you are here today and you're battling hurt, and, and, and maybe you've lived under this reality uh, that, that you've maybe hurt someone else, what I want you to hear me say, and I say this all the time, there's more grace in God than sin in you. And sometimes you just got to let go of it. And there's freedom waiting on you on the other side of this, but here's what you need to understand. Watch this. Justice ultimately belongs to the Lord, and one day he's going to fix this world. That is what the whole, you can save the 25 bucks on his book. Here's the whole idea is cosmic reconciliation actually allows you to live in freedom today. God is going to fix this world. Now, now here's where we're going today. We are God's agents of change in this world, and it's our job to bring his kingdom down. Like we say, in Alpharetta as in heaven. And one of the most common themes of the Bible is this idea of justice. God's people are supposed to be sacrificially loving and kind to other people, and we are supposed to lay down our lives to lift each other up. I'm telling you, this biblical truth is so countercultural that it might be hard to receive because everything in our world says the exact opposite. Everything in our world says to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do for yourself, and you be you. But the reality is, is God cares about justice. He cares about justice. I'm just telling you. Let me tell you really quickly. Let me tell you really quickly. God does not, all right, God does not care about justice because he ultimately cares about equality or equity. Now, you need to hear this. God cares about justice primarily because in the very first pages of the Bible, God says that human beings are different. We are image bearers. We are made in the image of God, which means that it doesn't really matter if you are of a social economic status or a different race. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. You reflect the image of God, and when you're treated poorly or when you treat them poorly, what you do is you mar the image of God, and, and, and it's an injustice towards God. Ultimately, God cares about justice because he cares about you, because people matter. I, I need you to hear me say this, too, because some of you are going to get caught up on this. We're not talking about political ideologies. All right? Matter of fact, if you're living the Christian life right, you're probably going to tick people off on both sides of the aisle because you live for a different kingdom, not this kingdom. We are talking about this because people matter. And their value isn't found in their education or their family background or the accumulation of wealth. Their value is found in the, mere, in the simple fact that God made you in his image. So with that in mind, meet me in verse 1. Here's what James says. And the only way that James can say it, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Y'all going to be honest with you, James' words are harsh, right? But what you have to do, like we've done for the last three months, is you have to parse through the words and get what James is saying. Here's what he's saying. One of the most dangerous ways that we can fall into this trap of injustice is when we hoard our stuff at the expense of helping others. That's what's going on here. 
Listen, God's people are supposed to be generous people. Like William Tyndale, the great scholar, English scholar, who translated the Bible into English. So the Bible you hold in your hand, thank you, William Tyndale. He did it at the expense of his own life. Listen to what Tyndale says. God has given one man riches to help another in need. It's really that simple. Did you know? Did you know that statistically, if everybody in America that called themselves Christians simply tithed to their church, that we could end world hunger immediately? Every stat shows this. Studies show, though, that only about 5% of believers actually tithe. Now, now let, me, let me give you some language here because I think this gets mixed up. Tithing literally means 10%, right? When you tithe to your church, you give 10%, and everything on top of that is called generosity. According to the National Christian Foundation, 80% of Christians give about 2% of their income on average. And I'd say that's skewed because of that, about 10% give a lot, and the other 70% don't give a whole lot at all. And listen, I'm, I'm not trying to guilt you into giving. I've told you this a million times, and I'll say it again. God wants your heart more than your stuff, and if you have problems with the church, go give your money somewhere else. I'd rather you be a generous person than fund our budget. It's not about that. There's something deeper going on here, something deeper going on here that God wants to get after, and that is because he wants you to be generous people. What I want you to see is this. If every single believer in America just created margin in their budgets to tithe, every church stat will tell you this, we would have an access, they say, of about $165 billion a year to impact the kingdom. And listen, there's no secret that the most, most relief work, humanitarian work, and restora restoration work in the world comes from the church. So check this out. Experts say this. It would take about $25 billion right now to end world hunger. It'd take about $12 billion to eliminate illiteracy within the next five years, $15 billion to solve the world's water and sanitation crisis, and $1 billion to fund world missions right now, and that would give us an extra $100 billion to build more hospitals, plant more churches, to create institutions to work against adoption and foster care solutions. Y'all, I hear people say all the time, God, where are you and why are you letting this happen? Sometimes I think God's like, hey, I was about to ask you the same question. See, the thing that made James so mad is that God had blessed these people so richly. He had given them everything that they needed to change the world, and instead of investing it back into the world, they kept it from themselves. Here's the principle. God has blessed you to be a blessing. Real quick, I want to be really clear here. that You, you might be hearing me talk about money for a second. Listen, that's not the problem, and that's really not the point. It's deeper than that, and this is what James is about to get after. God cares about your hearts. And oftentimes, your money is the thing that contends for your heart. So, so you're about to see this. If you'll just give it away or go from this to this, God tends to do incredible things and bless this world. And it's not prosperity gospel. It's Pauline theology. You, you realize that Paul, the, the, like the deepest theologian in the Bible, says the same thing. Look at 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says this, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Or how about 2 Corinthians 9? The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You see the point? God has blessed you to be a blessing. And he's not super pumped up about the fact that he has blessed us so richly, and we keep it for ourselves at the expense of a broken world. And y'all, I'm just telling you, Alpharetta, where we live, we are like the top 1% of the 1% of the 1%. God has blessed us richly here. We can make a massive impact on this world. What James knew that, so now read it again with that in light. Listen to what he says in verse 2 again. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, you know what's fascinating about that? James knew that silver and gold didn't corrode. You realize that, right? Here's what's going on. Listen to what he says. And if you're not careful, the same thing will happen to you. He says, if you're not careful, the things that you keep for yourself, those physical elements that won't rot, will actually begin to rot you. They will corrode your soul. They, they will eat your flesh. The, the picture right here is pretty crazy, but James is right, isn't he? The accumulation of stuff, it begins to own you, and it begins to kill you if you're not careful. See, the greatest minds in the history of the world, you think like Nietzsche and Kant and these guys, they've all agreed that there are essentially three things that will contend for and kill every human soul if you're not careful. You know what they are? Money, sex, and power. Every single one of those things, and if you think about it, they're the same three things that continually take us out today. But here's the deal. Money, money, the, the way you contend with money is you live generously. Then it can't have you, right? Power, do you know how you contend with power? Start serving. Sex, be faithful. There's an inverse to that, and the biblical inverse, it's not that God wants your, he doesn't want your money, he doesn't want your time, and he doesn't want your fidelity. What he wants is your heart, and he realizes those three things are contending for your soul. All those things are good things, by the way. Money, sex, and power, they're all good things if you're in the right relationship. It's when they get out of focus. You remember that. I told you that James's favorite word in the book of James is epitomia, which means an epic desire. It's when you take something, a good thing, and make it a God thing, and it becomes an ultimate thing, that it begins to ruin your life. Y'all, I promise you, the blessing is in the giving, not in the accumulation of stuff. God has blessed you to be a blessing, and I'm just telling you, God doesn't need any of your stuff. You realize that he can literally create it all by speaking, and if you don't think he can print more money, you got it wrong. Listen, if Biden can print more money like it's going out of style, don't you think God can? We got this. There is something deeper going on here. God is inviting you into generosity because, well, because he wants your soul to be full. It's a paradox, but it's a beautiful one. The more you give away, the more you get God. That's the point. He's inviting us into something beautiful. He's allowing us to be generous people because he loves when his people are cheerful. Literally, the, the Greek word there is happy givers. Like when we giggle when we give. When we give it all away. Listen, God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. Generosity is a gift, and it's a massive, massive injustice. When we don't steward the resources that God has given us, that he's entrusted to us to build his kingdom. Let me give you a paradigm shift, okay? You are a steward, not an owner. And when you begin to think like that, that it all belongs to God, what you see is you see yourself in right relationship. Your role is to manage what God has given you, not to own it. Your role is to steward the gifts of God, not to keep them. And when you get that, watch this, you begin to build God's kingdom, not yours. See, these dudes, they took the blessings of God. They took what God had given them so richly, and they built their kingdom at the expense of God's. And I'm just telling you, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what you love the most is what your heart desires. And if you love those things more than you love God's kingdom, what you begin to do is you begin to step away from God's kingdom and build your own. So even today, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to start somewhere. To find and build margin into your life to maybe just start being generous. To start giving something. Start somewhere. To start serving somewhere. Like to take, to take the resources that God has given you, whether it be human resources or the resources in your bank account, and just leverage them for the sake of the kingdom. 
You will make a massive impact on the world if you'll do that. And by the way, real quick, when you give to City Church, you know you don't just give to us, you give through us. Like, because of your generosity, we have two people right now that are on an airplane to go to the Dominican Republic to go serve the church plant that we helped plant and a missionary that we helped fund. We have Grace, who lives in Southeast Asia, that you guys helped fund to go live as our first ever international full-time missionary. And then you have Clay and Amy Churchill, who are in Kenya right now, uh, that we support and sent out. Like, when you give, you advance God's mission throughout the world. Not only throughout the world, but you realize that we partner We partner with local schools here. We partner with um, the police department. We partner with foster care agencies. There is a boys' home in town that we partner with. When you give, you give because collectively we can make a massive impact in the world. By the way, City Church also tithes. I don't know if you knew that. Our budget, we tithe our budget, and that, that percentage goes outside of the four walls of this church, and it has since day one because we just believe deeply in God building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and we want to do that. So if you have not, I want to challenge you, jump in and start serving. Start giving. All right, here's the next thing James says believers can't do. Verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You ready? God's people, God's people need to pay fair wages. Here's what's going on, right? This was an agrarian society, okay? So that what they would do is they, they would have day laborers that would go out and they would work the harvest all season long until the fruits of the field came about, and then the, then the people who owned the fields would rob those who worked of it to have more profit at the expense of those people. Look, we, we live in Alpharetta. There ain't a lot of fields around here. But the same thing happens today. Maybe it's the illegal immigrants that you know don't have a voice, so you give them little at the expense of what they really should have. They they don't get a fair wage from you. Or sometimes, and I don't understand this, but sometimes churches, they they buy into the poverty gospel and they think that their staff should suffer, so we should pay them a little so that they have to need God a little more. Y'all, I just don't think that's how God wants us to be. James... James actually uses verse 4, and he's quoting from Genesis chapter 4, and it's the story of Cain and Abel. And the story goes like this. In chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain and Abel both make a sacrifice to God. Now, if you miss what's going on, it's real subtle. But Cain makes a different sacrifice than Abel, his brother. Abel makes a sacrifice of his first fruits. Now, the reason why that's important is because when you give your first, well, you actually have to trust God to provide the rest. Right? When you give out of your abundance, well, you kind of take care of your own needs, and then you give. And, and, and honestly, God doesn't really care about your stuff. Like I said, he cares about your heart and the trust of that. So, so God comes, and he accepts Abel's sacrifice, and Cain gets really mad about it. Cain's super frustrated. Now watch this, because this is super important. God wasn't Cain's problem. Abel wasn't Cain's problem. Listen to what Cain says Right afterwards, listen to this in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, watch this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see see what Cain's his issue was? Watch. Cain's issue was that sin was always lurking in the shadows. And it's actually God's grace and his kindness to say, hey, you remember that dominion that I gave your dad, Adam, to rule over? I just want to remind you to keep doing this. Cain's problem was pride, not sacrifice. He spent his time, he spent his time blame shifting instead of worshiping. 
And the heart of the matter was this, is Cain was, he, God was like, Cain, don't worry about your brother. If you just follow me, I'll take care of you. The point is this, is that pride always positions you in a place to where you're okay with robbing the people around you. And, and it's the same pride that ultimately had Cain kill his brother because he was so jealous that he couldn't celebrate the wins of his brother. Listen, God knows, God knows, and he knows everything that's going on, and God cared about Cain. That's why even in that moment, God tried to console him. That's why he didn't reject him, but he, can, he encouraged him to look at the root of the problem. The root of the problem was his pride. Now here's the principle again. God wants your heart, and he wants your faith because he knows that a faithful life is an abundant life. You, you see it? So God is always going to check your heart. And as he checks your heart, don't miss the fact, don't miss the fact of this. He even hears the cries of the voiceless. Listen, listen, here's the quote that he comes to. Cain, after Cain kills his brother, watch what God says, because he thought he'd get away with it. God says, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You know what the point is? God gives voice to the voiceless, and he hears the cries of his people. <laughs> Y'all, listen, if you've been treated unjustly, if you're sitting in this place, this space today, I want you to hear me say that God hears you. Even whenever you're sitting in all your loneliness and despair and you just think the world around you is crumbling, God hears you. There's something beautiful about that. God knows you. He hears you. Here's, here's the principle. God will bring justice to this world. Even from the very first pages of Scripture, that's what we see. This is the thing that Volf taught me. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And when you really know that, when you really know that God's not just some cosmic being out there that can't hear you and doesn't care, but he entered in, he actually lives inside of you, which means he knows you even better than you know yourself, and that he cared so much that he would die for you, when you really know that, watch this, you don't have to take care of things yourself. That's what the entire book of Psalms is about. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Do you know how he took care of vengeance? He nailed it to the cross. Think about how amazing and how beautiful this is. The gospel is that God looked on evil of this world, and he didn't just forgive it, but he absorbed it in himself. Now, that's important. He took the penalty on himself, and he killed evil at the cross. That's why grace might be free to you, but grace is not free at all. If you're sitting on this side of injustice, God hears you. He sees you. He knows you, and he will fix it. Think about Abel. Think about it. Abel, if you know the paradigms, Abel was the younger brother. Abel was a shepherd which means he was the lowest of the lowest. He was the one that culture said was less worthy and should not have been accepted, and yet God looked upon him. He looked upon the one that nobody else did, and he says, I hear you in your suffering. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here. Maybe you're sitting here right now, and you're wondering how in the world can you have hope in the middle of your mess. You're like, I get it. One day, I get it. But what about right now? Let me tell you two things that I know to be true. First one is this, is God hears you. He ultimately knows what you're going through and he cares. He cared so much that he sent his son to live, his per to live your perfect life in your place. And ultimately he will come back and fix it. Now watch this. Number two is this. The whole point is that you are God's change agent to change the world. Which means that we should carry one another's burdens. We should be changing the world. We should be caring for each other. We should enter into each other's suffering and we should be the ones that fix the injustice. We need to help you. You need to let us help. See how that works? We need to create a community where change is possible. Guys, we should carry that for one another. But listen, listen to what James's point is. 
if you are filling your pockets at the expense of helping the people around you, even though they seem voiceless, God knows. I, I think that's a big warning for us. Y'all, God's people are supposed to be different. We're supposed to be leading in generosity. We're supposed to pay people well. We're supposed to take care of people. Like, if you have the ability to do it, and I know a lot of you do because you're the managers at work, if you have the ability to do it, like, give good benefits. Take care of the people around you. Care for them. Pray for them. Take care of their families. Be known for being a great employer and be just, even if people don't have a voice. That stuff pleases God. God's people are supposed to be different. Verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You realize this? The day of slaughter was a day of sacrifice. It was supposed to be a worship service. Think, think about this. They, they were, anytime you went to worship, you brought a sacrifice. Their lives were supposed to be a living sacrifice, like Paul said. And instead of bringing their life as a, to the altar in worship of God, they actually worshiped for themselves. See, see, that's the heart of the injustice. Here's the next form of injustice that, that James addresses. When you build your kingdom with God's resources. The fundamental problem here is this. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to you. Check this out. When God has entrusted you with everything that you have, and when you start to see it as a gift from God, you see your life as a steward, not an owner. And you begin to live differently. These people took the resources that God had given them to build his kingdom, and they built theirs instead. That's self-indulgence, and that's injustice. See, this, this posture shift is only possible when a Christ follower sees who Jesus is. And look, we, we can't just act like we should do this. We must do this. God has gifted us with talents necessary to cultivate the earth. Again, I say this all the time. When he created you, he didn't just step away. He actually gifted you with skills necessary to build this thing, to bring his kingdom down on earth as it is in heaven. So, so we work, and we work really hard, and we leverage our gifts to build a better kingdom. We do great business. We, we, we make good money. We, we do everything we can, but not to indulge ourselves, but to build God's kingdom and to change the world. Church, we really can make a huge impact if we stop seeing ourselves as coming to church and start seeing ourselves as being the church. Right? That every single person in this room has been, if you're a Christ follower, indwelled with the Spirit of God living inside of you, and he's taking you, and he's building his kingdom through you. I've told you this a million times. The worst thing that ever happened is back in antiquity when the Catholic Church said that I have a sacred job and you have a secular job. That's not true at all. You have a sacred job too. Your job is just as important as mine. Matter of fact, you probably make a bigger dent in the evangelism of the world than I can because people just think I'm weird. You, though, you just be a good person building good humans and living justly and then tell people about Jesus, you can actually change the world. What if God blessed you to be a blessing? What if justice is in your hands being ready to be unleashed into this world to create new jobs, to care for the poor, to leverage your assets to make a difference in the world? Did you know the most common word for justice used in the Bible, it's actually the Hebrew word mishpat. Um, it, it, means, it means this, listen, it means to have restorative justice by going a step further to take a step to advocate for the vulnerable and then to create structures to stop injustice from happening. 
That's, you know, we don't like this language today because the systematic injustice, what, what actually mishpat means is that the believers in the world should be creating systematic justice, right? Systems so that these things don't happen anymore. Let me show it to you. Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you but to do mishpat, to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That word justice, it's to create systems of justice, not simply, not simply to supply the needs of others, but to create an environment to where human flourishing is possible. Y'all, if the church doesn't do it, who's going to? Seriously, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? God has created us to do it. Church, we need to be mishpat. From the womb to the tomb, we need to create space to where moms can flourish, that we can have houses and jobs to take care of these kids. We need to invest in dads because let's just be honest with you, dads are the most important people to change the world. Every stat shows it. When dads are absent, the family structures are destroyed. And we live in a culture right now that wants to destroy dads. We need to invest in godly marriages where where men and women love each other. They, they live in community together, and they create good human beings out of that. We need to take care of orphans and widows. We need to create jobs. We need to have shelters for the poor. We need to work towards mental health problems in our city and depression problems because we have some of the highest suicide rates in the entire country in this city. Depression is a big deal. We need to do all that stuff because people matter. Because people matter. And they find their value in the sense that they are image bearers. Listen, I don't care what you've done or who you are. You matter to God. And because you matter to God, you matter to us. Y'all, this stuff isn't liberal. It's biblical. It's biblical. And this is what the Lord requires of his people. You see that? And look, are, are there unhealthy ways of doing this? Of course there are. Right? Justice is not void of wisdom. We, we get that. We're not talking about handouts. We're talking about creating human flourishing. Which is what James gets to at the very last part. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now this is fascinating because I don't, I don't actually think that James is talking about physical murder here. I, I think he's actually saying the injustice that you have has killed human flourishing. Right? That God has created you to build human flourishing. And when you live in self-indulgence, you actually kill the ability for people to flourish. God, God's main main objective in this world is to bring his kingdom down on earth as it is in heaven. And when God's people don't live like that, we kill the atmosphere or the environment necessary for human flourishing. So connect the dots. Connect the dots. You remember last week? You have your Bible? Let me show it to you. Last week, we talked about leveraging your lives for the sake of the gospel. Talk about being willing to go anywhere God asks you to do, do anything God asks you to do, and, and do it where he asks you to do it. Now, if you remember, look at verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. How does he start that? Look at it. Come now. You see that? Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. How does he start it? The exact same way. Here, here, let me connect the dots for you. The most prideful thing, James says in chapter 4, 13, the most prideful thing is when you leverage your life for the sake of making a profit and you don't live with an eternal perspective. That was last week. And then he says when you do that, the end result is this. You kill human flourishing. You kill human flourishing. Y'all, I would argue that you kill the ecosystem necessary for people, for people to even hear the gospel. Listen, the, the disparities of this world, they're meant to be an opportunity for the church to step in and create mishpat. Now, for us, 
to leverage our lives to be the generous ones. Think about it. Think about it. Isn't this the story of the gospel? Jesus. Jesus didn't hoard his stuff. He opened up the heavens and literally leveraged his life so that you and I could have an imperishable life. Where we tend to hold on to our stuff, Jesus emptied himself, Philippians 2 say, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich, Paul said. When we understand the gospel and we emulate who Jesus is, we do the same exact thing. Jesus didn't fraud people. He lived with generosity in his life. He, Jesus, Jesus was so generous that James says that he gives wisdom generously to all who ask. He gives good gifts to his children. Y'all, the spirit of God, he gave to you to reside inside of you, to change you from the inside out. He gave you eternity and he gave you joy on earth now. John 10.10 10 says that he gave you the abundant life. And he even gives rewards to those who serve him. I'm just telling you the gospel is that Jesus went far and beyond anything that you could ever ask or imagine to serve you. Jesus did not indulge himself at the expense of others. He poured his life out literally daily and for all of eternity so that you could have an imperishable prize. He was interruptible. He went out of his way to heal people. He invested his life into the people around him. He emptied himself of his glory so that you could have, you could have life and life everlasting. The thing that you have to understand about the gospel is that God didn't hoard anything, but he gave it all away richly. God was murdered so that you could have life. And he says when we do the exact opposite, we murder so that we could have life. This is so scandalous that Tim Keller called this generous justice. That God generously gave everything. You know, we are God's people. We are God's people. And we're supposed to model the image we bear. We're supposed to be kingdom people. And kingdom people live for a better kingdom. We don't hoard, we leverage. We don't defraud, we bless. We don't indulge, we collectively enjoy human flourishing. And we don't murder, we bring life. Now, now let me land the plane like this. Some of y'all are wondering if you can ever actually live in this freedom. And I'm just telling you, the only way you'll ever live in this freedom is if you get the order right. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says if you put first things first, you kind of get second and third things. If you put second and third things first, you not only lose those, you lose the first thing. Listen, before this can be a do sermon, that's religion, it has to be a B sermon. Here's what I mean. Justice isn't first about you. You remember at the very beginning I told you that freedom happens when you understand that vengeance belongs to the Lord? Watch this. God satisfied justice by putting it on Jesus instead of you. Y'all, when God looks at you, he doesn't see unforgiveness. He doesn't see your past. He doesn't even see the hurt that you might have caused. God sees Christ's perfect righteousness in you because Jesus put on flesh. Jesus lived your perfect life. Jesus died your death in your place. He rose from the dead in order to absorb the penalty, absorb the punishment that you, that you belong, or that you, you deserve. He lived a perfect life in your place. So in Jesus, we see perfect justice from God. Not letting sin go unpunished. That's a big deal. But he punished sin in himself. And he offers you forgiveness, reconciliation, and the right to be called a child of God. See, the ultimate point is, you've been forgiven. That's a one-way street from God. But he offers reconciliation, which means you have to receive it. 
And at the end of the day, what God offers you is a restored relationship through undeserved forgiveness. See, there's nothing more comforting and assuring than this, that God has brought you into his family. So maybe, maybe today, before you do anything, before you do anything, you receive. You receive the gospel. Like you stop trying so hard and you just be for a second. That's the entire point of the book of James, by the way. You realize this. The book of James is like a mini sermon on the mount. It's teachings over and over and over again about God's kingdom values. But God's kingdom values are for kingdom people. Kingdom people live differently because they live within the kingdom. Before you can live in the kingdom, you need to be a part of it. You know, you don't need to do more stuff. You need to receive the gift of the gospel. You, you need to live in the freedom that you already have. Have you done that? Have you looked to Jesus and said, God, I want freedom to be your son or your daughter? Like, I know we live in the South, and all of us know Jesus. We can, we can, repeat, we can repeat the gospel. You, you know the liturgy. You know the terminology. But have you really surrendered? Like St. Augustine said, said, there's no saint without a past, and there's no sinner without a future. All of you have a past. But you know what? None of that really matters because your past was absorbed in the cross of Jesus. And all of you have a brighter future if you receive this gift. Because at the end of the day, listen, the gospel is not about behavior modification. It's about transformation. And that transformation comes from God. St. Augustine talked about this a lot. This was the, the world he swam in. He said the very first sin and the sin that continues to destroy your life today is not doing bad things or good things. Luther, Martin Luther said it like this, our hearts are bent in on themselves. The very first sin is that we stopped loving God and we started loving ourselves, which means that you don't need to just change your behavior. What you need is you need a new heart. You need to shift your love from yourself to God, and the only way that's possible is through the gospel. I love this promise. Jeremiah 31. Listen to what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know what Revelation chapter 21 says? God will be our God. We will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. There will be no more hurt nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, because God himself put a new heart in his people, and he will come to live with them and to fix the mess of this world. See, God will fix the justice ultimately. Until that day, that's already not yet, the idea is, is that his church would do it. Here's the deal. Jesus is life for your absolute surrender. It's the deal. And it's the deal that will change everything. It's not behavior modification. It is him changing you from the inside out. It's the greatest gift. But you have to be humble enough to receive it. You have to finally just let go and receive. And that's where, that's where justice flows from. Justice flows from a transformed life first. And then a transformed life that understands the gospel, well, then you can't live any differently. When you understand just how much God did for you, how in the world could you not do it for the people around you? That's why God's people are different. That's where the power to change comes from.
God's people understand grace, and so they give grace. And all of this, all of this is given to bring you and I into his family and to be change agents to change this world. City Church, I just want to be honest. I want to give my life. I want you to give your life to giving it away. Because here's what I know. I've seen it far too often. You might think that keeping it for yourself brings joy, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Case in point, Tom Brady. You remember 2007 or whatever, whenever he had like 14 Super Bowl rings and he gets on 60 Minutes and he says, there's got to be more to life than this. And the guy asks him, so well, what is it? He says, I don't know. I don't know. Well, now he's going through a divorce. His life is messed up and he's at the top. Because I'm just telling you, getting to the top does not satisfy the soul. God does. And when you let him satisfy your soul, you have a joy because you have an imperishable life that begins to impact the people around you. And what you see is that Jeremiah 29, to seek the welfare of the city, begins to take place. And as it does that, little by little by little, city church is no longer a building, but it creates human flourishing to where this world actually gets to see what justice looks like. Where I look around this room, and I look at Nigerians, I look at a uh, South African, I look at African Americans, I look at white people, there's Indians that come into here, there's people that are older and younger, and we put a picture of the gospel of Revelation chapter 7, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation stand around the throne of God and worship. Listen, you don't have to wait to go to heaven for that reality to happen. What you just need to do is be the church, and the flourishing will begin. James is saying he has given you richly everything you need to do it. Now go do it. Go do it. Father, I pray. I pray in Jesus' name that you would make us gospel people, kingdom people, that first are people that receive the kingdom from your gracious gift, your generous justice, your abundant life, that we would receive and then we would give. God, would you help us? We are needy people, but God, we are so full whenever we, whenever we live for your kingdom. I pray that you would impact us, that you would use us, and that you would send us. In Jesus' name, amen.